Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to John 18. Uh, You can also uh, put a marker in Matthew 26, and then we're going to look also at Luke 22. We're going to look at the first three trials of Jesus, and in order to do that, uh, this morning we're going to have to look at uh, John, Matthew, and Luke. As you know, as we've been studying through the Gospels, really each Gospel writer will look at these events from a different perspective. In order to get the full story, we put them all together so that in, in stereo we have the fullness of, of God's revelation to us. And so uh, as we look into the trials of Christ, we're going to pull in some of the other Gospel writers and we'll begin with the first trial, which occurs Uh, in John 18. As we work our way through the passion narrative in these final hours of Christ, uh, one of the things that we see, if you were just reading this for the first time, or or maybe certainly from the disciples' perspective, it appears as though this situation is just going from bad to worse. It appears that this is on a downward spiral to no good. Um, We've seen Christ distressed in the garden. We've seen him betrayed by one of his own. Uh, We've seen him abandoned by all of his guys. And and now he's arrested. And the situation does not look good. But what do you and I know? We know that Christ is in complete control. That he is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he is also the sovereign son of God. And what we'll see in both his words and his actions, none of this catches him by surprise. No one is taking away his life. He is laying it down of his own initiative. And so we see a beautiful picture strung throughout this of the sovereignty of Christ that he is in control and he's giving his life not for his sins because he is perfect and he's God. He's laying his life down for our sins that we might have eternal life. Well, with that in mind, let's pray together and then we'll work our way through these passages. Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to study your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would never get over the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. You have demonstrated who you are through the living word of Christ and through the written word given to us here this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would show us who you are and how we relate to you. Help us to better understand who Christ is and the salvation that we know through faith in him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John 18, look with me at verse 12. You'll remember where we left off a few weeks ago. Uh, They have come to arrest Christ. They have brought some of the temple guard along with uh, a Roman cohort, which would have been about 500 together with the rest of the Jewish leadership. Probably about 600 people are coming to arrest Christ and take him to his first trial. This is his first trial. Look at verse 12. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So they're going to take him first to Annas. Annas is not the high priest. He's the father-in-law of the high priest. But they take him uh, to Annas because Annas is still revered among the nation. He's like the godfather. He's the guy that's respected. He may not be in control. He was deposed by the Romans. But they still look to him for leadership. So they need to get his stamp of approval on this process. And they're going to use this as an opportunity to dig up some dirt. So look at the trial as it begins. 
begins in verse 19. It says there, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So again, this is an interrogation. They know they can probably get him on the, the crime or the, 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 uh, the sentence of, of blasphemy. They know they can probably get that, but that doesn't really mean anything to the Roman government. What they really got to get him on is this issue of sedition. So all these questions about his disciples, his followers, what are you teaching them, who are these people, it's an effort to get him on this charge of sedition. So look at what it says, uh, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So it's, it's, you got to understand it's, it's dark, it's late at night, probably somewhere around midnight. They're questioning Jesus about what he's been teaching. And Jesus says, listen, I, I've got nothing to hide. Everything I've done has been done under the, the light of day. I, I've been open. I've been transparent. There's nothing covert about what I've done or what I've taught. Just go ask my people. And the implication is clear here. Jesus is saying, while I have been open, while everything I have said has been transparent before the people, it appears that everything you are doing is covert. Everything you are doing is under the cover of darkness. He's saying, I've been in the light. Nothing covert. I got nothing to hide. But it sure looks like you guys got something to hide. Because all your little meetings are behind closed door under cover of darkness. Isn't this amazing how Jesus turns the tables on him, doesn't he? They're there to question him. He turns it back on them. And one of the officers, he understands that this is a rebuke from Jesus. And so what does he do in verse 22 when he had said this? One of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, if I've done anything wrong, just let me know. But Jesus knows they got nothing on him. And so they don't answer. And verse 24, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is the first trial, and Christ is found here completely innocent. Now look with me at Matthew 26. Matthew 26 Here is the second trial of Christ. We pick up where we left off in Matthew, beginning in verse 57. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. They lead Christ away, probably not very far. And it says in verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So here Christ stands before the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish leadership. The Sanhedrin, most believe, is the group that is established by Moses. You remember with, when Moses is a judge over the people and his father-in-law Jethro tells him, you can't do all this work. You've got to delegate some others to be judges over the people. And he establishes a group of men who are God-fears and they love justice and they love the truth of God. And so they're established as these 70 heads of justice and judges. And so Christ here is before this Sanhedrin. And verse 58, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And don't overlook there, they are looking for false 
testimony. They are not interested in truthful witnesses. This is all a sham. They are not truly seeking truth. They're not truly trying to determine if Christ is who he claims to be. They have already decided that he's not God. And so all these trials, they've already decided the verdict that he's guilty, and they've already established the sentence that he deserves death before the proceedings ever began. This doesn't start here. If you've been reading the Gospels, you know that they decided from the earliest of days in Jesus' ministry that he's guilty. He's not God. And what do we got to do? We got to put him to death. So they're looking for false testimony. In verse 60, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward. So they're looking to obtain false witnesses. In other words, they're trying to pay people to give false testimony concerning Christ. This is amazing to me. Let's all be honest here. If somebody's looking to dig up dirt on you and me, they probably wouldn't have to pay anybody to get it. But this is Christ. He is the sovereign son of God. He's the perfect lamb of God. He is innocent. There's nothing on this guy. So now they're trying to pay people to bring false testimony against him. And and just me, I conjecture about these things. I wonder how in the world did they go about this? I mean, did they uh, put a sign up on the temple grounds or on the synagogue, wanted uh, false testimony uh, against Jesus? And I I would imagine they didn't put false testimony. They didn't want to be that blatant about uh, their deceitfulness, but they're seeking out testimony. And I wonder if there weren't people who came forward that were embarrassing to their case. Now, I can just imagine it. Some lady comes up. They're having their proceedings. Uh, who do we have now? Well, we have the widow of Nain. All right, widow of Nain. What is your story? Well, uh, my son had died, and we were having the funeral procession, and, and Christ came in compassion, and he, he touched the coffin, and my son was brought back to life as a result of this man's ministry. Well, all right, widow of Nain, if you'll just move right along, that's not really the testimony that we're looking for. Uh, maybe another gentleman came up. Uh, uh, sir, what is your name? Well, my name is Bartimaeus. Well, Bartimaeus, what's your story? Well, here's the deal. I was blind, and I was at my local place where I would beg, and Christ came along, and I, I cried out for mercy, and he came over to me, and he touched me and healed me, and immediately I regained my sight. Well, Bartimaeus, thank you, sir. If you'll just move on down the road, we're not looking for that. And maybe the paralytic, and I don't know how it went, but here's what I do know. They didn't want true witnesses because there were plenty of those. They're looking for false witnesses and they can't find any. Mark's gospel tells us that they look for false witnesses and even their false witnesses couldn't get their story straight. It's harder to maintain a lie than it is to just tell the truth. They got nothing. They finally get two people who come forward in verse 69 and say, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And Jesus did say that in John chapter 2, but they 
completely missed the spiritual significance of what Jesus was saying. They think he means he's going to lead some kind of overthrow of the Jewish leadership. What Jesus was referring to was his own body. You can kill me, but in three days God will raise me from the dead. And they know it. The high priest knows. Even in that, they don't have anything on him. And I think the high priest at this moment is growing increasingly frustrated that he can't put his case together. He knows what he wants. He wants to find this man guilty. He wants to put him to death, but his case is falling apart in front of him. And so in a moment of frustration in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I assure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the son of God. Just in a moment of frustration, he says, we're probably not going to get him on this sedition, so let's just go after the one thing we think we might be able to get him on, and that is blasphemy. So he just kind of goes for the jugular. Let's just ask him. Let's just see if we can get him to admit it. And Christ said to him in verse 64, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And Jesus here quotes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And there he sees the Ancient of Days. He sees God. And then he sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the Ancient of of Days declares the Son of Man to be perfect. And he grants to the Son of Man the right and the authority to judge the nations in righteousness. And all the nations worship him, and his kingdom has no end. And the implication of Christ, as he quotes Daniel chapter 7 to these religious leaders that are interrogating him, the implication is clear. He's saying to them, you might be judging me illegally today, but one day I'm going to judge you in perfect righteousness. You can just imagine to these guys who thought of themselves as the only authority. You can imagine this didn't go over very well with them. And so they say in in verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes, which by the way was illegal according to Jewish law. You didn't rip or tear the priestly garments. More than this, as as the high priest in situations like this, you, you, you couldn't show partiality. Meaning you were supposed to be unbiased. You were supposed to hear both sides of the story. And then, in in full restraint and self-control, you issue a verdict. Well, he demonstrates no impartiality here. It's clear where he stands. He tore his robes and said, he blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, uh, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spat in his face and and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And you've got to realize at this moment, uh, for the past three years of Christ's ministry, their anger towards Christ has just grown and grown. They didn't like this man who referred to them as sinners. They didn't like this man who called them whitewashed tombs. And they were mad and they were frustrated. But throughout his ministry, they had to kind of bite their tongue. Why? Because the crowd 
crowds love Christ, but now they got him behind closed doors. Now they got him under the cover of darkness. Now they got him with no one watching, and he's just blasphemed in their minds. And so all that pin-up frustration, all that anger, in a moment of rage, they lose complete control, and they unleash their wrath upon Christ, and they beat him. Not like religious men. These are the religious elite. These are the sophisticated. These are the intelligent. And in a moment of anger, they act like rabid dogs. And they beat Christ. The ferocity here is so understated. And then they mock him. One of the attributes of the Son of Man is that he judges the, the thoughts of man. In other words, the Son of Man as the righteous judge, nobody escapes his judgment. And so here they mock him and they spit in his face and they slap him and they say, who hit you? In other words, we're not afraid of you. You're no judge. Christ here again is found innocent. The only charge that they can bring against him is claiming to be God, which would be the highest form of blasphemy if it weren't true. But he is the Son of God, and he's perfectly innocent. Now look with me very briefly. Luke 22, Luke 22, the third trial. So two times now, innocent. All they got is that he claims to be God, and he is. Luke 22 Beginning in verse 66, they lead Christ probably to Caiaphas' dungeon after the second trial. And, and the, the, the dungeon was probably just nothing more than a, a deep hole in the ground. You can go to Jerusalem today. If you've been there, they'll show you some of these dungeons or chambers that they would have kept prisoners in. So they probably take him to Caiaphas' dungeon. They lower him down into this dungeon. And he, there he stays for probably about five hours. And they got to wait until day. Why do they wait till day? In verse 66, they wait until day. Why they wait till day? Because these are good law-keeping people. And they wouldn't want to do anything that's against the law. And the law says you can't try a guy for capital punishment in one 24-hour period. You've got to wait till a second day. So they're technically obeying the law. Isn't this crazy? This is the epitome of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so they wait until day in verse 66 and and the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you would not believe. And if I ask a question, you'll not answer. And verse 69, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He quotes Psalm 110. You know what he's saying to them? You can kill me, but death cannot hold me. And I will rise, and I will be seated at the right hand of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? They want to get clarity. And he said to them, here is full disclosure. Yes, I am. And he pronounces the divine name of God. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Again, the third trial in every situation found innocent. The only charge that they can bring him against him is claiming to be God. 
which he is. He is innocent. Let me give you three things that I think we see very clearly in these three trials. Number one, Christ reveals himself to those who truly seek him. Christ reveals himself to those who truly seek him. These guys, they don't want the truth. They're not interested in discovering uh, whether or not he truly is the son of God. They've already determined in their heart, we know everything. We're the religious, we're the educated. He's not who he says he is. They determined it long ago. They've already determined the verdict guilty. They've already determined the sentence death. Now all that remains is to somehow rummage up some evidence that makes those two things clear. But make no mistake about it, they're not interested in truth. They're not truly seeking. And so when Christ comes to them and they question him, what is his repeated response? Silence. And here's what I know. If you come to Christ with arrogance, if you come to Christ and you think you've already got it all figured out, you come to Christ and you've already determined he's not God, then you will probably get the same response. Because 1 Peter 5.5 says that God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I mean, you come to Christ in arrogance. Christ will abide intellectual integrity, but he will not abide intellectual arrogance. You think you already got all the answers. You think you already know everything. You'll probably be greeted with silence. Christ will not play games with you. A little later on, Jesus is going to go before Herod. You know what Herod wants? Herod wants a show. Bring him to me. I just want to show. See if he'll do some tricks for me. See if he'll perform some miracles. And what is Christ's response to Herod? It says, Jesus answered him, nothing. In other words, Herod, I know your heart. You're not a true seeker, and I don't play games. He's going to stand before Pilate, and Pilate's going to ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is going to say, Pilate, are you asking that of your own initiative, or did somebody else tell you about me? In other words, Pilate, are you truly seeking knowledge? Are you truly seeking the truth about who I am, or are you just doing your job? Because God's not so much interested in your questions as much as he is your heart. On another occasion, a man by the name of Nicodemus will come. He's one of the Jewish leadership. But he comes to Christ in humility, and he says, I know enough about you to know you're divine. What do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus goes into a lengthy discussion with him about what it means to know salvation. Listen, some of you are here this morning, you're watching online, and you got questions about who Christ is. You got questions about what it means to follow him. You got questions about Christianity. And I want to encourage you, come with your questions. I just so happen to believe God's big enough to handle all your questions. We got nothing to hide as Christians. Come with your questions. But I will tell you this. You need to come with a heart of humility. You can't come to Christ and think, well, I've read all the books. I know everything. 
I would challenge you, if you're seeking, I would challenge you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read them with an open heart to say, God, I truly desire to know the truth. History is chocked full with people who were really intelligent but came with integrity to study the scriptures and they came to faith in Christ. Men like C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel. Intelligent men. Come with your questions. Go to God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Come with humility and see if Christ won't travel that road with you. He gives grace to the humble. Secondly, we see this in this, in this, all these trials. The gospel has always been offensive to those who are perishing. The gospel has always been offensive to those who are perishing. These religious leaders, they're not just rejecting Christ, they're offended by Christ. I mean, they're offended at the notion that they, as intelligent religious men who have devoted themselves to the study of God's word, they're offended primarily that Christ has told them that they're not good, but that they're sinners in their whitewashed tombs. But I think even more than this, they're offended at the notion that they, as the religious elite, would somehow have to humble themselves and bend the knee to a carpenter from Nazareth who claims to be God. But hear me this morning. They were offended back then and today. The world and those who are perishing are still offended by the gospel message we proclaim. I mean, think about the message we proclaim, folks. Our message is that you are not that smart. No matter how many degrees you have, no matter how many books you've read, no matter how many languages you know, how smart or wise you might be in the eyes of the world, all of your knowledge is but a thimble full of knowledge in comparison to the infinite knowledge of God. And you can't figure out who God is on your own. God has to reveal himself to you by means of his word. You're not that smart. And we're also here to tell you, you're not that good, no matter what your mama said about you. You're not that good. You are a sinner. Whether you want to admit it or not this morning, all of us, myself included, we are miserable, wretched, weak sinners. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Amen? But that is who we are. And the message that we proclaim is that the only way to know God's salvation, the only way to know freedom, the only way to know forgiveness is to bend the knee and trust in a Galilean carpenter who died over 2,000 years ago, not for his sins, but for yours. And that through faith in him, you can have life and life eternal. But he's the only way. And to those who are perishing, it's always been that the world in general, they don't like that message very much. And I'll tell you today, there was a day when that message was a lot more welcomed in this nation than it is today. And less and less people like that message and more and more are offended by it. But I'm here to tell you today, Lenexa Baptist, we're going to continue to proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Because we're not here to tell you you're good. We're here to tell you the truth. 
regardless of who comes, regardless of who shows up, because we don't have the authority to change it. The gospel is offensive. But on the other hand, to those of us who know Christ, to those of us who know we're sinners, to those of us who know that we're not that smart, the idea that God had come and do for us what we couldn't do and give his only son to die on a cross for our sins, that's pretty good news, amen? It's not just pretty good news. It's the greatest news ever known to man that God would save me and he'd give to me the free gift of salvation by means of faith. The third thing, the third thing that we see in this is that Christ is only taken by means of faith. He's only taken by means of faith. You see throughout this, uh, Christ has, has kind of been hidden. In fact, throughout all the gospels, when people would come to Christ, he'd do great miracles, he would tell them, see to it that you tell no one that I'm the Christ. He always told people, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Now, privately, sometimes with his guys, he, he'd give disclosure. But openly and publicly, don't tell anybody. But when you get to Luke 22, in that third trial, Finally, in a public fashion, Christ says, I am the Christ. Full disclosure, blatantly and openly, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. And what's amazing to me about this is that when Christ finally goes open in public with the fact that he is Messiah, in that moment, he never looked less like Messiah. In that moment, when he finally goes public, he has been beaten to a pulp. He is weak. He hadn't rested. He's probably had no food or drink for over 24 hours. He's abandoned. He's betrayed. And then in that moment, he says, I'm the Christ. And to a large extent, you know why the Jews didn't accept him as the Christ? Because he didn't look like the Messiah. Isaiah 53, he grew up before you like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form of majesty that we should look, on, look upon, nor appearance that we should be attracted. He was despised. See, he wasn't the savior that the nation wanted, but he was the savior that they needed. He came to die. But they couldn't see it. But, but the reality is, the only way that any of us ever come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the only way that any of us come to the knowledge that Jesus is my greatest joy and my only hope is by means of faith. See, all of us in this room, we could give testimony about how we came to faith in Christ, but, but I'm sure that none of us would say, well, yeah, see, here's the deal. I'm smarter than everybody else, you know, and I... I just so happen to figure it out, and all these other people can't figure it out. I put all the details together. No, what would we say? We say, no, we were just going through life, and somehow, by the proclamation of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit working our hearts, somehow the blinders were pulled back, and we were able to see Christ, not just as some Jewish carpenter that died over 2,000 years ago. We recognized him by means of faith as the king of all kings and my only hope of salvation and I trusted in him. Salvation is not something that you think your way into intellectually. I remember Billy Graham did the crusades in London and uh, he had the opportunity to preach to Cambridge. And uh, before he preached to Cambridge, he sat down and he had a meal with C.S. Lewis. And he was commenting to C.S. Lewis, he was saying to him about how he was a little bit intimidated as some country boy from North Carolina, and here he is preaching to Cambridge students. And you know what C.S. Lewis told him? 
C.S. Lewis told him, Billy, remember this. They may look like they're really smart, but they're all just sinners. And he said, Billy, you just preach the gospel. Preach the message you always preach. That salvation is by faith alone. Some of you, you've been investigating, you've been seeking, but as we're working our way through the Gospels, you're beginning to see that Christ is your only hope and your greatest joy. And my challenge and my encouragement to you today is do not harden your heart. If Christ is working in you, drawing you to himself, trust in him. Believe in him. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly as to who Christ is. We see it over and over again that he's the perfect lamb of God. He is innocent. And because he is God and because he is perfect, he's the only means by which we must be saved. God, if there's anybody here that's never trusted in you, I pray today would be the day of their spiritual birth the day in which they trust in you and they're transferred from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. God, by means of faith, I pray that you would change them from the inside out. You'd set their feet upon the firm foundation of Christ and they would follow you down a path that leads to life and life eternal. Father, for those of us that do know you, I pray that this understanding of who you are and what you've done would so overwhelm us that today we would commit ourselves again to living for you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Christ. We'll have pastors here at the front, love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you just wanna pray with a pastor. This is your time. Know this, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.